Today's Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at what John tells us about Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's John chapter 12, and I'm going to read, if you turn to it, I'm going to read from verses 12 through 19. John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, O do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd was with him when he had called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone to him. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You know, uh, Palm Sunday, and if you look carefully, the hymns you've sung, the, uh, the various uh, readings that you've read, are all about Jesus as the king. Now, the, Jesus... Palm Sunday is about the fact that the king is coming back, he is Jesus, and he is the true king, and that his kingship will bring blessedness. Now, that's not a word that we use much anymore, so we're going to have to give you another word, all right? Where you see the word blessedness, substitute, ultimate meaning, endless riches, personal fulfillment, profoundest personal fulfillment, personal and social revolution, all of those things. If you don't know the king, they are forever beyond your reach. This text, in this text, John is trying to show us not just the fact that Jesus is king, but he's trying to show us in what his kingliness consists. What makes him a king? What, wherein does his, uh, his royalty lie? And what John is showing us here is that Jesus dazzling greatness, his royalty, his true kingliness lies in his ability to unite within himself perfections that otherwise could never be united under the same head, in the same person, in the same heart. On the one hand, you have strong uh, indications of the magnificence and the majesty of the king. See how the whole world goes to him. But on the other hand, you have very clear teaching about the lowliness and about the weakness and the meekness and the gentleness of the king. Behold, your king comes, meek and lowly, riding on an ass's colt. Now, these two things are brought together and they're united in the same person. And that is what makes him so great. And what I'd like to, to, to say this morning is, this is the medicine, the only medicine that can deal with humanity's deepest pathologies. It's Jesus that you seek. Would you listen here? There's nothing worse when you're famished than to eat an appetizer. Nothing worse. It'd be, it would be much better to eat nothing. Because when you're famished, 
and you want to eat an, that you eat an appetizer, what that does is it, it awakens your real hunger. It uh, actually, it teaches your mind, it gets the juices going, and your brain and your body get all ready for the main course, but it's not there. If you know the main course is not coming, it's better not to eat an appetizer, it's better to go hungry. What do you think true love is? What do you think adored leaders are? You know, people will do crazy things for true love, and people will do crazy things once they think they've found the leader that can lead them to absolute nirvana, to utopia. People will do crazy things. They'll all commit suicide in mass if they think they've found the true leader. True love, deep friendships, adored leaders, you know what those things are? Friends, they are appetizers. You're trying to find a kingliness in there. You're trying to find something in there you never will be able to find. People will let you down. People will let you down. They'll disappoint you. And some of you right now are very aware of that. But you see, people, true love, great leaders, dear friends, were never meant to do anything more than to suggest the main course. This is the main course. The one you seek is Jesus. He is the true king. And if you knew yourself, or I should say this, as you know yourself, this is the one you seek. In all of your efforts for true love, in all of your efforts for friends, in all of your efforts to find a leader, somebody who you really could follow, a hero, this is the one you seek. Now the question comes this way on Palm Sunday. What is this true kingliness? How does it appear in Jesus Christ? And lastly, how can it appear in us? The thesis, we all want true kingliness over us and true kingliness within us. That's what we're seeking. We want true kingliness over us and in us. So the questions are, what is true kingliness? How does it appear in Jesus? And how can it appear in us? Quickly. Number one, what's true kingliness? In the most enduring of all the tales of the Western world, true kings have this very strange combination of both being fierce and meek. The ideal king, the true king, is not partly fierce and partly meek, but he is ultimately fierce. He's fierce to the ultimate degree, and he's also meek and sensitive and modest and tender to the ultimate degree. At the same time, the true king is invincible in battle, and yet so tender-hearted, so meek, so modest. The true king, his eyes are the first to flash with anger at evil, but it's all, his eyes are also the first ones to cry in the presence of beauty or in the presence of sorrow. This is what the true king is. The true king is someone who is the, the bravest and the sweetest. And recently, my wife and I have gotten hooked on the, the most recent uh, uh, movie version of, of Henry V, the Shakespeare play, and we have it again. You have it again. Henry V was not like this, but Shakespeare makes him the ideal king. Here is a man whose heart is so, is so set on high causes and great objects that his soul is always bursting with the force of glorious enthusiasm and yet and yet he's completely humbled absolutely sure that the strength that he's got has flown into him from his people and from his God he is bold and lordly without a shred of self-importance he is absolutely terrible to traitors and terrible against injustice in battle but without even an iota of personal revenge you feel like you're in the presence of something absolutely wild and unpredictable, and yet something under total control. His face is fair beyond bearing and terrible, and that 
is the ideal king. It comes up again and again, constantly, in the most enduring tales of the Western world. And what I want to know is why we're so attracted. Why we just desperately want to be in the presence of the ideal king. It's a real question, and the reason it's such, a, it's such an interesting question is because there never has been one. You see, when you actually get out, which I did, you get out a book on Henry V, and you say, man, what a man, and you get out the real book on Henry V, and after his greatest battle, he slaughtered all the prisoners. Real kings, the record of real kings is abysmal. We had to get rid of them. And what I want to know is, where did we get the idea? Real kings never were like that, and yet we constantly need to recreate. As soon as we can get a few hundred years away from them, we recreate them in the, in the image of the ideal king. Not only are ideal kings, uh, not only is there no record, the real record of kings are abysmal, but the fact is that when we look at our own hearts, we realize that the ideal of the true king puts an impossible demand on human nature. You cannot get the bravest and the meekest, the boldest and the sweetest, together in the same heart. If you know real war heroes, you realize a lot of them can't even live in civilized society. And you also realize that the urbane, the sophisticated, the scholarly type is full of indecision, is a milksop. See, I don't know which side I'm on. See, I know something about that. You just can't keep those things together. How do you get that together? It's impossible. So if that's true, since it's an impossibility and the actual historical record is such, where do we get the idea of the true king? You read about him in Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, we read this. In Revelation, we come upon this. And the elder said, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is strong to open the book and to break the seven seals. And I looked and beheld, and in the midst of the throne stood a lamb that had been slain. The Apostle John was looking for a lion, and he saw a lamb. You know why? Same person. The lion who's a lamb. The lamb who is a lion. Who is this? And Jonathan Edwards, years ago, wrote a sermon on this text in Revelation. And he says this. The beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ consists largely in a conjunction of such actually diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. You see, the ideal of true kingliness does not arise out of pagan religions or out of other religions. Achilles was not like that. It doesn't come from the Greeks. Achilles knows nothing about the idea that the bravest warrior has got to be the sweetest. It doesn't come out of the northern sagas. It doesn't come out of Rome. It doesn't come from the east. It's a crazy Christian ideal. The ideal that the bravest and the strongest must be the meekest and the weakest and the sweetest. And you know why this crazy Christian ideal came up? Because Christians know it's not an ideal. There really is a king like that. It's Jesus. That's where we got the idea. Where else would it have come from? He's the one that you seek. It's not Henry. It's not Lancelot. It's not Arthur. It's it's not King Henry. It's not the knight of the round table. It's not King Arthur. Who is it? It's Jesus. Now, it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that we see this. Every other kind of true king that we paint is a fiction, except this one. And it's that very thing that makes us want to be with him. It, it's, it's odd. The true king attracts men and women alike. We want to give ourselves. And what happens is, the only one who really embodied this 
was Jesus. And you see it right here in the passage. On the one hand, you see the lowness of Jesus. He specifically went out to get a, a, a donkey's colt, an ass's colt, a very, very meek, a very, very humble steed. And why? Because Jesus specifically was trying to fulfill the prophecy written in Zephaniah 9, verse 9. It's not written out in its fullness here in John, but it goes this way. Behold, your king comes, meek and lowly and riding on an ass's colt. See, for years, rabbis and students of the Old Testament tried to understand this. How can the Messiah be riding on an ass's colt? If he's going to be liberating us from everything that enslaves us, how could we po he possibly be a meek and sweet little guy? How could that be? And here's what Jesus is saying as he rides into Jerusalem. He's saying, listen, if I just came in to, to uh, liberate you from the Romans, what good would that be? Because you'd still die. Because you'd still have your guilt. Because you still have the problem of meaningless existence. When you overcome the political oppression, what about your personal oppression? He says, I've come to deliver you from something far more enslaving than the Romans. I've come to deliver you from death. So I don't come with political clout. I come in lowness. I come in weakness. I have come to die in your place. I have come to take your place and to take your punishment, to deal with the sin of which death is the result. I'm going to deal with that. And so he comes, he says, therefore, don't you see, my triumph is my weakness. I'm a lion and I'm a lamb. I am so strong that I will put my head down on the chopping block where your head ought to go. And as John Stott says, as the essence of sin in us, as the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We claim the prerogatives that belong to him alone, and therefore he accepts penalties that belong to us alone. See, Jesus says, I come in weakness so that I can free my subjects to serve their true king. I don't come to get rid of the Romans. I come to get rid of death itself. I come to get rid of sin itself. I come to get rid of evil. And this is what he was talking about because in verse 16 we're told that the apostles didn't realize that this is what Jesus was talking about until the moment he was glorified, to the moment of his hour. And in the book of John, his glorified hour, the hour of his glorification is his death. It wasn't until the apostles were in darkness, in the moment of their greatest, what they thought, weakness, when God's wisdom dawned on them, and they realized that Jesus' greatest weakness was his greatest strength. The lion is a lamb. The lamb is a lion. That's what makes him great. That's why we want to give ourselves to him. That's where his kingliness lies. That's what makes him the king we all seek. And... <clears throat> It doesn't just show us, this passage does not just show us, Palm Sunday does not just show us his lowliness, but his highness. His highness. Because we're also told about the palm trees. Now, the palm branches. What do the palm branches mean? Well, now, you see, to the people who were waving the palm branches, this was just a typical way, a custom, that they used to deal with a conquering hero. It was the ticker tape of the, of the, of the uh, ancient days. It was a ticker tape parade. It didn't cost a million dollars. It wasn't as hard to put on. <clears throat> they didn't have to raise funds for it. it was, that's all it meant to them. But to Jesus, it meant something else. Because Jesus knew that the next time he comes back to Jerusalem, Palm trees are going to be waving at him. Branches are going to be waving at him. But it's going to be because of this. Psalm 96 says, Let the heavens be glad 
Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and all that's within them. Then shall the trees of the wood sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Or Isaiah 55 tells us when the king comes back for good, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break into singing, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. See, Jesus knows that the next time he comes back, the palm branches are going to be waving, but they're going to be attract, attached to the palms. He knows this, and this is the teaching of the majesty of the king, that on that day, everything, all creation will bloom. The implicit, the potential glory and beauty and power of creation explodes in the presence of the king. You know that old, uh, that old hymn that we never sing, Morning Has Broken? Remember that one verse that goes... The sweetness of the wet garden sprung in completeness where his feet pass. Wherever the king comes, wherever he reigns, whatever is potential, whatever is implicit, any glory, any power that was in there erupts. You become yourself. Wherever the king comes, whatever is under his management, there is singing. All your longings are fulfilled. Over in Roosevelt Island right now, everybody's a little scared because the tram, the cable car that gets us from, from Roosevelt Island over to uh, Manhattan is, is, uh, is going to be put under new management. The old management, which has done an excellent job for years, has lost the contract. And you see, evidently, way back in the early 80s, the, the uh, cable car, the tram, was under very bad management, and therefore there was constant breakdowns, there were constant stop work stoppages, one time for four months while they were working on the, on the, uh, the tram. And everybody's so scared because under good management, things hummed along, and everything worked like clockwork, and, and, and everything just sung, you see. But now, under bad management, there can be breakdowns, there can be decay. The reason your life is the way it is, the reason our world is the way it is, it's because it's under our incompetent management. And when the king comes, wherever his feet pass, springs to completeness, blooms out of you, out of anything that he's in charge of, comes glory and power. Wherever the king is, there's singing. Wherever the king is, there's palm trees what, waving. What it means is nature, everything blooms. Do you know that? Are any of you, let me just ask something quick as before we go on. This is the kingliness of the Lord. His greatness, his highness, and yet his lowness. Don't you long for this kind of life? Or have you gotten satisfied with the life the way it is? Life the way it is. You know, the best times are gone like that. The best friendship clusters only happen for a while and then they're spread everywhere. Our looks and our body are fading and decaying. Our bodies are decaying. Everything's going away. The flower today is on the manure pile tomorrow. Don't you long for something infinitely more? Or have you gotten satisfied with life the way it is? Life under the present management. Have you said, oh, well, this is about as good as it can get? Don't you long for a place where instead of decay, things get newer and richer and brighter and stronger every day, every moment, forever? A place where things get more whole, more coherent, more vivid every moment, forever? If you have stopped wanting that, if you have started to say, well, hey, I'm not an idealist anymore. I realize what life is like. If you have put to death in you your desire for that kind of world, you have put to death your own humanity. If your desire for a world under new management 
has burned low, then your humanity has burned low with it. He's the one you seek. He is glorious and he's humble. The greatest is the most glorious. He is the one that when he comes forth, the earth quakes and the hills melt. But on the other hand, this is the one who is so tender and so smart, is so sweet. Uh, he invites children and prostitutes and the beggars to his feast. And not only does he notice us, but then he is willing to become our friends and he's to enter into a spiritual marriage, his soul with our soul. And beyond that, he's even willing to be abased and exposed to shame and the spitting for our sake. Behold the king. Blessed is he. And his blessedness will come into your life if you receive him as who he is. The true king. Now, the last thing we have to ask is this. If this is true kingliness in Jesus, is it possible for this true kingliness to come into our lives? And the answer is absolutely. Not only that, there's no hope for society if it's not. Let me just, all I can do is give you some suggestive pointers here. Unless the kingliness of Christ comes into your life, you'll be a barbarian or a wimp. And most of you know what you are. Those two sides to human nature cannot be united except through this miraculous spiritual kingliness of Christ coming into your life. Only he can be the brave warrior and the sweetest and most tender artist and poet. Only he can unite those things together. It's an art. It's not a science. It takes something from outside of us. Only he can do that, and therefore, only he can create kingliness in men and women on earth. And most of us realize that we fall into, because of our sin, because of our incompleteness, because we're not under his management, we fall into one or the other. And the only way that you can have his kingliness come, come just rushing down your arms and your legs and exploding in your center is by letting him ride into your heart as your king this morning. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the nth time, this is the way you can put on that kingliness. See, for example, on the one hand, if you make Jesus Christ the Lord, the King and Head of your soul, he will create in you a servant heart, just like he's a servant. Now, those of you who were on the, the weekend retreat, this ties in with what we were talking. Those of you who weren't, uh, it ties in with what we're saying anyway. Jesus comes meek and lowly. He's a servant. He will make you a servant. Now, a servant is neither a wimp, neither a wimp nor a barbarian. One of the good things about the codependency books is they're talking about a non-royalty kind of service. There's a kind of person who needs to rescue people, needs to enable people, needs to always be burning out helping people. But that's not a real servant because you see, that kind of person so despises him or herself that you're out there rescuing people so that you can just scrape up a little bit of self-worth. And so you're not really serving anybody, you're using them. You're serving yourself. Real royal people are strong enough to be meek. They come on into people's lives and they listen. A servant is somebody who says, I don't care if I'm getting anything out of this relationship, I want to serve. I listen for what the needs are and I meet the needs. I listen for ways in which I can overlook and forgive. I listen for ways in which I can, with uh, real compliments, real honest compliments, build a person up and treat them as valuable and make them feel what they are, and that is precious images of God. A servant is somebody who comes in and listens and serves and finds ways to meet needs, and it's, it takes a royalty in you to do that. 
There's a kind of wimpy service, and there's the barbarians who won't even come close to, to even condescending to letting somebody else interrupt their, their schedule. But Jesus Christ will make you into a servant. Some people look at New York City. How, how have you come into New York City? Some of you are here to use it. You hate it. You don't like it, but you're here to get what you can out of it, to either make your money or to get your status or to get your credentials, and then you're going to get out of here as fast as you can. Others of you are not using it. What happened is you've imbibed it. You've let it shape you and mold you. It's molded your morals. It's molded your way of understanding things. It's molded your values. You see, we're either barbarians or wimps. We either, let, we either use the city or else we let the city use us. A Christian is somebody who's here to serve the city. Transform the city. Not hate the city. And not just adopt the city, but transform the city. Where are we doing that? When will we find out, when will the church find out that just what Jesus knew all along, that the way, the way to win the world is to become a servant. The way to win the world is say, what am I going to do to change the people in this city? What am I going to do? Where, where's the, where's, yeah, where are the neighborhoods that we've rehabbed? Where are the counseling centers we've started? Where are the community action councils that we've worked on? You see? In other words, where, where are the schools? Where are the orphanages? Where are the foster care centers? Where are the... What have we done as Christians to make ourselves servants of the city? Not using it like barbarians, not being used by it like wimps. Servants! Jesus Christ can make you a servant because he's a servant. And his kingliness will make you that way. But on the other hand... If Jesus Christ comes riding into your heart today for the first time or the nth time as king and head of your soul, if you give yourself to him in a new way, not only will he make you a servant heart, but he'll make you a lion heart. Because that's what he is. That's what a king is. And his kingliness can come into men and women now. There's a place in the book of Luke where Jesus sends his disciples out. And he gives them supernatural power to heal people and to cast out demons. And they come back, and when they come back, Jesus says, how did it go? And the apostles say, unbelievable. It's incredible. We can cast out demons. We can, we can uh, uh, heal people. Now this is power. And Jesus in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 20, actually rebukes them and says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to your name but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what he's saying at that point is, if you want real kingly courage, you don't get it by having naked power. If you want real kingly courage, if you want to act like a king, you have to know this. I am your high priest. Your names are engraved on the high priest's ephod, the breastplate. That means when I die and go to heaven, your names will be written over my heart, and I will be standing as your king, as your representative, before the throne of the Father. And because... You are my children because you are my brethren, because you are my friends. God will see beauty when he looks at you. And what, what Jesus is saying is, all of your problems come, your lack of kingliness and your lack of courage comes not because you don't feel like you've got power over people. Forget your successes, forget your trophy cases, forget your credentials, forget your beauty, forget your accomplishments. If you want to act in this world like a king, if you want to act like a royal person, you need to know that your name is written in heaven. I see you. I'm, I'm your pastor. I, I know how many of you toss and turn at bed at night, 
deathly afraid you're going to lose the little bit of honor that you're trying to get in the little puny earthly courts around this world. And Jesus Christ says, you have the favor of the king. I am your king. You have access to the, uh, the chambers of the, of the king of the cosmos. Your problems all come because you don't know your name is written in heaven. This is a discipline. Do you want to be kingly and lordly? It's a discipline. You say, I'm facing this on Monday. Gosh, I'm scared, but my name is written in heaven. I've got this in front of me. How will I handle it? But my name is written in heaven. Real kingliness comes from knowing who is fighting at the head of your army. Who is fighting for you? He's the one you seek. He's invincible. He's a lion heart, and he will give you a lion heart. I know somebody's out there saying, what's this? If I make Jesus king, his kingliness will come into my life. It's just too hard. I can't be a servant. I'm too messed up. I certainly can't have a lion heart. I'm too messed up. Not if Jesus is your king. Listen, last little illustration. Have you ever heard? Years ago, I read a very, very brief little story. Three paragraphs long, and it was called Palm Monday. Palm Monday. And this little donkey gets up on Palm Monday and says, boy, this is going to be a great day. And he walks in to the marketplace and he says to everybody, here I am, and nobody looked at him. So then he walked on down a little bit further and came right into the banking area and he said, here I am. And everybody said, what are you doing here? Get that ass out of here. And they threw him things at him and they pushed him away. And he came on back and he, to his mother and he says, I don't get it. I don't get it. Just yesterday, just yesterday, everybody... And she says, silly child, without him, you can do nothing. Now you see, it depends on who's riding you. It depends on who your king is. It depends on what's driving your life. It depends on what you're living for. Great kingliness will come into your life if you make him the king. Friends, on the first Palm Monday, he came meek and lowly, riding on an ass's colt. The next time he comes back, he'll be riding on a cloud. The first time he came to be torn, the next time he will come to tear apart all evil. Open your gates to him now. Let's pray. Our Father, as we, uh, these last few moments of the service, some of us have never really made you our king. We recognize that. We've believed in you. We've thought about you. Uh, we've tried to emulate you. Uh, we've uh, recited creeds, but we recognize that we don't live for you. You're not the thing that drives us. You're not, you're not the thing that rides our agenda of, for the week. We pray, Lord, that there are people here this morning who will realize that this Palm Sunday needs to be their Palm Sunday, their triumphal entry, the day in which they unlock the gates of their life from the inside to let Jesus become the king and head of their souls. Father, for all of us, however, need to realize we need to open our gates now. We don't see the servant heart in us. We don't see the lion heart in us. We don't see the kingliness that attracts us so much to Jesus in us attracting people to him through us. We don't see that. We ask that you would bring your kingliness into our lives, exploding through our veins. We want to reproduce that kingliness in our lives. That's what we ask for. Do anything to us it takes to achieve that in our lives. That's what we're going to pray as we listen to the musical offering. That's what we're going to pray as we sing our final hymn. That's what we're going to pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.